So for some weeks now, we've been looking at the prayers that biblical characters have prayed in times of crisis. And we will do more of that this morning. And the passage of scripture we're looking at today is from the Gospel according to St. Luke, from the 22nd chapter and the 39th verse. This little subsection is called the agony. Luke 22, beginning in verse 39. And as this is the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I would invite you to stand for the reading. He came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not come into the time of trial. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him and gave him strength. In his anguish he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. When he got up from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping because of grief. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. Lord Jesus, by your spirit, enable us to perceive all that you're saying and bless the reading of your word to our hearts. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So this particular passage, this prayer, has been playing with my head for a few weeks now. You probably know that we were moving towards this prayer. When you think about prayers prayed at times of crisis, this is the pinnacle of what the time of crisis is in terms of the revelation of Scripture. And so this passage is bothering me, and it's sort of worked its way into my head like an earworm, and it just keeps spinning there. And... And I figured the best thing I could do is just pass that on to you and let you sweat with it for a little while. So we're, we're just going to spend some time in this passage and ask questions and try to understand exactly what's going on here. And, and to do that, one of the first questions that I've been stuck on is this. What does Jesus know and when does he know it? I mean, we have this, this passage in Philippians 2 emptying passage where we know that Jesus left his father's throne, emptied himself of his divine prerogatives, and took on flesh. So this is, this is a new thing in the history of the world that Jesus is doing. We sing the, Wesley's, the Wesley hymn. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, right? He, he emptied himself. He, he left those things behind. And I'm suspecting that a reason for that is the incarnation is all about Jesus identifying with us and living a human experience exactly like ours, okay? He, he comes so that his life in part can be a model for us so that we know how to live. So his life has got to be just like ours. His experience has to be in union with our experience. And 
If Jesus brings with him from heaven his divine providence to know everything, then his life isn't going to be exactly like ours, is it? Because we don't know everything. I'm thinking that the things that Jesus knows during his lifetime, he receives by the Spirit in prayer and communion with his Father. And his Father reveals things to him because he has left this divine prerogative to know everything in heaven. He'll take it back up when he gets back up there. But for now, he's like us. He doesn't know everything. And I want to know, what does he know? And when does he know it? I mean, I'm thinking to myself, well, by 12 years old, he knows something, right? Because he's in the temple when he's supposed to be with his parents. And his parents in anxiety go looking for him. And and he says, well, didn't you know I would be in my father's house? So he knows something there. Whether he knows anything about his mom's story at this point, we don't know. I mean, what do you tell a 12-year-old about stuff like that, right? So we don't know how much of his mom's story he might know. And we have to believe he's learning the scriptures and studying from the time he's 12 and becomes a Jewish man up to the time he's 30 when he launches his public ministry at his baptism. He certainly knows more at his baptism when a voice from heaven speaks identifies him as a son, and then he's whisked away by the Spirit into this temptation in the desert. He knows a great deal about his identity at the, by the time he gets into the desert. But, but how much does he know and when? By the time we get in Scripture to the transfiguration, where the glory of God escapes from his skin and the prophets appear, and the voice from heaven comes again, he must surely know a lot more. By that time, he knows he's going to die, right? By the time he gets to Lazarus' tomb, he's already set his face towards Jerusalem, and he knows they're going to kill him. The very act of bringing Lazarus from the dead is throwing the gauntlet down in the face of death and the religious leaders of his day, and so he knows he's going to die at that point. In fact, shortly after that, he knows that he's going to die by crucifixion. In the verses before this, he tells his disciples, I'm going to be crucified. So he knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to be crucified. He hints at his knowledge of crucifixion all the way back in the third chapter of John when he talks to Nicodemus, right? The bronze snake being lifted up and the allusion to what is going to happen to him. So, So he knows a lot, but does he know all the details of it. Tells his disciples he must die. Tells his disciples they're all going to betray him. He knows knows that much. He knows from Isaiah 53, because in the verses before this, he, he identifies the fact that Isaiah 53 applies to him. So one of the reasons we can confidently today say that Isaiah 53 defines Christ is because Christ told us it did. He knows from that passage that there's um, the potential of significant trauma and difficulty on his way to being crucified. So, so what does he know? The reason I need to know what he knows is because I need to know what is motivating this anguish, this agony. And is it just the fact that he's going to be facing torture and crucifixion? I mean, that's enough to bring any of us to the point of agony, right? To know that we're going to die the way Jesus died. And it's not just physical death and torture, it's, it's abject humiliation. 
I mean, they don't dress you up in your finest clothes when they're getting ready to crucify you. They humiliate you. It's a criminal's death. I mean, if we see the miracles of the New Testament as the validation of the message of Jesus, in Jesus' day, the cross was actually the nullification of the message. They would have seen anyone dying on a cross as having been cursed. Dying a criminal's death? How can anything he said be believed if he allows himself to be, die, to be killed in this way? And so he knows that this is in his future. That has to create agony. Maybe that agony is compounded by the fact that he knows all of his close friends are going to betray him. I mean, he's poured his lives into these guys for three years, and not one of them is going to stick with him. He's been trying to give them the keys to the kingdom. <laughs> Think about that. You know, you, you trust your kid with your home and your passwords to your IRA and all this kind of stuff, and, and, and you don't ever suspect they're just going to bolt on you. I mean, you, you've invested you have a close relationship, you trust, you spend time, and, and that's not really going to go the way he hopes. I've been wrestling with this idea based on what Jesus knows and when he knows it, that it's just possible that part of the anguish is Christ, in Christ is knowing or wondering if his sacrifice will be futile. Will, will anybody receive this offer? He's, he's making this grand sacrifice to open a way of reconciliation between us and God. And, and I wonder if he's wondering, will anybody take me up on the offer? Was there a point to this thing? I mean, even if my closest friends don't get it, how's anybody else going to get it? If the disciples can't figure it out by now, how will anyone else figure it out? But, but there is some scriptural warrant for believing that Jesus has hope that his sacrifice will be beneficial. You get to the end of Isaiah 53, and it says that the suffering servant will see his descendants. Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Now, it may be that the joy is just simply the joy of being obedient to the Father. Because we know this prayer is about obedience to the Father. And, and the joy he's, that is described in Hebrews could just be that joy. But I think it's more than that. Remember, when we get to the cross, Jesus is going to quote Psalm 22, which begins, Father, why have you forsaken me? If you get to the end of the psalm again, there is vindication. God does answer, God does reply, God does help. And so Jesus has, has scriptural evidence to believe that his gestures will be useful and helpful. But does he have any more than that? It may be that this quotation of Psalm 22 in the cross is Jesus grasping for hope the hope that the psalm offers, that this sacrifice will not be futile, that men and women will come to the Father through his sacrifice, that there is hope for the future in him. But does he really know 
that this sacrifice will be accepted? Does he really have any more evidence that we have that God will take the sacrifices of our lives, the, the sacrifices we make to live as citizens of the kingdom and use them in ways that are fruitful and productive? I don't think Jesus knows, based on his divine knowledge, that his sacrifice will be productive. But I think he has absolute confidence in the character of his father and in the promises of the word. And so I think his confidence in the garden of Gethsemane, his confidence as he goes to Calvary's cross is the same confidence that we can have because it's based in the character of God and the promises of his word. Jesus is like us in every way. And on his very worst day, he prays, Father, if there's a way for me to avoid this particular cup, that's my preference. However, the most important thing for me is that your will be accomplished. And Jesus subverts his will to the Father's will. In spite of the fact that he doesn't have any more assurance that this is going to work than we have when we commit our lives to Jesus and ask him to lead us. In fact, if success is measured in pain-free existence, the promise that Jesus has is crucifixion, right? So we can't imagine that our promises are different than that, can we? we? We have to believe that the promise of Scripture isn't that we will be on autopilot and coast easily through life. What we have to believe is that God will take what we offer to him, and as we live in obedience to him, when we subvert our will to his will, that it will be fruitful and productive and meaningful and bring about the things that God wants us to do. So, so in our worst days, when crisis is everywhere, what do we believe and what do we know? Do we believe, do we trust in the character of this good God that we have? Do we believe that he's, he's taking the circumstances of our lives and weaving them together in some way that will be productive and meaningful and fruitful in terms of the kingdom of God? Or are our prayers so saturated with, Lord, get me out of this, regardless of what your will is, that we can never get to the place of praying the way Jesus did? Can we pray with Jesus knowing that the future might not hold for us what we want it to hold for us? You remember the words of the prophet Habakkuk, though the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit is on the vines, though the produce of the olive fails and the fields yield no food, though the flock is cut off from the fold and there is no herd in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exalt in the God of my salvation. Even when things don't turn out the way I expect, or even when I endure things I'd hoped not to endure, and even when I have to suffer in ways I didn't suffer 
Am I still able to pray with Jesus? Not my will, but your will be done. I mean, what promises do we have from Scripture that living as citizens of the kingdom will be fruitful and meaningful? And I think the best summation of it, not the only summation, surely, but the best summary of it is the parable of the sower. You know the parable of Jesus. You remember the story. Uh, a sower's out sowing seed. He throws it all over the place. Seed falls helter-skelter all over the place. And, and some of it falls on the path where the ground is too hard. It can't take root. Some of it falls in stony ground. Some of it, and so it, it, the roots are shallow. And some of it falls on ground where there's weeds and the weed chokes it out. And, and we spend a lot of time thinking about those different kinds of soil. But some of the seed falls on the good soil. And the whole point of the parable is simply this. If you will consistently seed, take root, and it will produce a huge harvest. 30 times, 60 times, 100 times. We don't know what the yield will be, but the promise is you sow the seed. You live the life of the kingdom of God, demonstrating the gospel appropriating his power to do his will, and there will be productivity. There will be a return. There will be a blessing. It will not be wasted. Not every seed will grow. There'll be times of frustration. But the promise is meaningful, productive living for the cause of Christ. For all of us, who will say, not my will, but your will be done. And so I'm wondering this morning if we have the courage to pray with Jesus. Remember, he's our example in all things, right? And so we have this record of Jesus' prayer on his worst days. Not my will, but your will be done, Father. And I'd invite you to pray that with me this morning. Heavenly Father, we come from many different life experiences today. But we pray that you would give us courage to pray with Jesus. Not my will, Father but your will be done in me and through me all the days of my life. Amen. And now may God the Father grant you courage to pray with Jesus that his will might be done in your life. To the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.